Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the show. Great to have football back. And right now you can get a huge range of markets on Bet365. They include first, last or anytime goal scorers and plenty more. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. Football's on just about every day at the moment with wall-to-wall Premier League and EFL games. And with Bet365 Bet Builder, you can create your own personalised bet and you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and plenty more. If you can't watch all the games live with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow everything that happens through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from the Apple App Store and Google Play. It's for over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. And the Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan, and this is the familiar sound of The Athletic's Phil Hay. Hello. And from The Square Ball, this voice belongs to Michael Normanton. Hello. We love hearing from Phil, but if you want to read what he's been writing, then get yourself a subscription to The Athletic. For a limited time only, there's 40% off a subscription. To get that discount, point your browser to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod and get yourself signed up for less than three pounds a month. There's unrivaled coverage of Leeds United in every club, so you can keep right up to date with all the goings on inside and outside Ellen Road as the season reaches its climax. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pods. After the latest round of matches, still very tight at the top. There's a point between Leeds and West Brom and Leeds are now six clear of Brentford in third. We are here in the wake of the Luton draw and just ahead of the Blackburn match. So where are we now? There's a lot of flirting going on at the top. But like you say, we're three games into the restart. Um, Leeds started off seven points ahead of Fulham. They've beaten Fulham. They're now eight points ahead of Fulham. And the only team in the top six who really seem to be going in for the kill are, are Brentford at the moment. Um, you, you've still got Forrest hanging in there with Fulham as well, although the, there is quite a chunky gap from them up to, to West Brom. But it hasn't really changed shape from how it was to begin with, with the exception of, of Brentford closing in slightly. Um, but it, it hasn't seen the, the front two move clear at all. Um, you've still got Leeds and West Brom there. They're still in a very strong position, I think, particularly after West Brom getting a win in midweek, which they, they definitely needed. There will still be plenty of confidence, I think, in, in both camps that they're, they're going to be able to do this. Um, but you, you did wonder before a, a ball was kicked in these last nine games if the first couple of weeks could decide an awful lot. And, and in actual fact, bottom of the table, top of the table, playoffs, automatic promotion, they've resolved or, or moved us closer to resolving absolutely nothing. It's, it's still as wide open as it was. Well, we got that great performance against Fulham in the second half anyway, followed by some very typical leads against, uh, against Luton. I mean, your ones to watch that we picked out at the back end of the previous pod, Phil, you picked out Mitrovic from the Fulham game and of course we saw the forearm smash inside the opening few minutes. You'd said on the previous pod, keep him quiet and you win, which is actually exactly what we did and you forecast a big, big battle between him and Ben White. I mean, I don't think it took a genius to figure that one out necessarily, so I'm not prepared to give you too much credit, but you called it absolutely spot on. And then the Luton one to watch, Nathan Jones, one of a select few managers, you said, who've got the better of Bielsa and arguably he did a job on him again and then he swore at Pablo in Spanish and apologised. So, Pretty much spot on with your uh, your forecasts from last time. Makes change, makes change. Um, yeah, the wind is obviously altering direction on on that front. Fulham was a, a funny game. Um, I tweeted at half time to say that Leeds went through that first half with thirty five percent percent of possession, which is almost unheard of under Bielsa. I mean, it's quite unusual to see his team drop below fifty percent at any stage. Um, never mind as, as far down as that. And and you could tell that he could... He, I, mean, I think all of us watching could see that there was an issue and, and we could see that even though Bamford had scored early on, Fulham were coming on to Leeds too heavily and Bielsa obviously spotted that himself and two really clever subs with Hernandez and, and Alioski. I mean, obvious subs in, in a lot of ways, particularly with Hernandez, but just again with him, the willingness to do it early and, and the willingness to be pretty forthright with it and to, to front up to the fact that it wasn't working as he needed it to. And, and I think what Hernandez did... On, uh, on Saturday, but also in the final half hour uh, on Tuesday against Luton, was just help Leeds to play a little bit more centrally, help them to vary the play slightly more, certainly against Fulham. Him and Cleek together in in the midfield just gave the gave Leeds far more of a platform than they had with Cleek and, and Roberts. I almost feel that because Roberts is that kind of attacking almost centre forward, but but perhaps not quite. When, when he plays in that area with Cleek, it's almost as if Cleek is, is doing the job for a couple of people. It's almost as if he is crying out for somebody else alongside him to retain the ball and pass the ball and, and kind of manipulate play, which is obviously what Hernandez does 
does brilliantly. And there was a great assist from, or at least a great ball from from Cleek that that led to the second goal. It was just fabulous, typical Hernandez assist that led to the third. And it felt like a very big win. I mean, it was a big win in the sense that it really did keep Fulham at arm's length, but it almost felt bigger than that at the time. It, it felt like a statement result, even though you'd probably say over ninety minutes, three 0 was was slightly slightly flattering. And then you then you have Luton and. I have to say, I mean, he's he's a niggly individual, is Nathan Jones, and and it was very strange the the argument between him and Hernandez afterwards. I'm told that he called Hernandez a, a son of a bitch um, in Spanish at full time, but I have absolutely no idea why, and I don't know what the the argument was over. And obviously, Hernandez took great exception to that, and you never really see Hernandez pick a fight with anybody. He just isn't that type of character. He isn't he isn't that way inclined. But what Jones did do was get his tactics right. Uh, I mean, they. They're in decent form anyway, Luton. That you know they, they've they've been kind of racking up the points little by little over the past few weeks. But they like the, you have to do against Leeds. They they back themselves to defend tightly. They they back themselves to be compact and make it difficult. And again, I, I was a little surprised by Bielsa's team because I, I felt that after Saturday you could see that that he needed Hernandez. And, and also, I thought you know Alioski's energy and and his impact against Fulham was quite noticeable as well. I thought they might have been fairly obvious picks for Tuesday and you know clearly Hernandez is not 100% we'd spoken to him on the Monday before the game and, and he'd said you know I'm not quite there I'm not 100% right you know I don't know if I can get through 90 minutes so there is a, a degree of body management going on with him but you you felt from about 25 minutes half an hour onwards that there was going to have to be a change and I think you know even before Luton scored you were really just looking at your clock counting down the, the seconds and the minutes to the point where Bielsa said yep yeah, and you know went for Hernandez off the bench do you think he got it wrong, Michael? Um, it's hard to say. I think we created the chances to win the game. I think that's the thing. If On another night, I think we win that game 3-1, 4-0, 3-0, something like that. I think the you look at the Bamford and Costa headers and floodlights aside, I mean, I don't know if, if Phil has anything to say about the floodlights there, whether there's any anyone at the club has said anything about it, but those chances, you, you've got to expect at least one of those to go in. And then all the conversations around this game are completely different. And I think if one of those goes in, particularly the earlier... Bamford one we probably go on to get another goal in that because they then have to push forward I think there was a rare lapse at the back from Ben White it wasn't a catastrophic error by any means but he did maybe leave him a little bit too much space thinking he couldn't do anything from where he was I mean that aside like they had nothing else in the game did they I would I would think we could have played that game for another another two hours and they probably still wouldn't have scored again so maybe wrong to say we got it he got his tactics wrong but it is a recurring problem with us that we do fail to take three points out of games like this yeah, I, I think that the thing that was no, notable for me was the fact that, that most of the chances or the best chances came once they got Hernandez on the pitch and there is still that reliance on him to, to be creative and to open open teams up. Um, you're right about White. I think what White was trying to do with Cornick was to, to show him onto his left and, and make him, sort of force him to, to shoot at a fairly tight angle of the net and but in the end didn't get tight enough to him, didn't close him down and, and just gave him the chance to dink him. What was a, a really, really classy finish, actually. It was a it was a great goal. But in, in terms of the floodlights, I mean, I, I've spoken to the club and, and the club said there was nothing different with the floodlights. I mean, they, they are as bright as they have been. People who've listened to this podcast will know that there are plans to replace them uh, over the summer. They've got planning permission from the council to put two new pylons behind the West Stand and increase the illumination, which will take them up to Premier League standards and all help with things like 4K TV broadcasts. It's all kind of tied into that. It is in the pipeline to be done um, and, and may well be done regardless of, of whether leads do go up. Uh, so it's conceivable that, that Bamford and Costa lost track of the ball in the in the lights. And, and I think if they say that they did, it's very difficult for us to, to argue. Otherwise, you, you almost have to give them the benefit of the doubt there. But I don't think anyone can suggest that there was anything different about the, the setting on um, Tuesday evening. It was cloudy. It was fairly overcast. It was pretty dark by the time those, those chances were coming round. And the floodlights that were there um, have been there for as long as I've been writing about Leeds. So, you know, it was a kind of kind of strange issue afterwards. And I think Bielsa said himself, I don't know what the problem was and I don't know if there was a specific problem with the, with the lights, but they were just odd chances. It was odd scenarios where Bamford's in particular, by the time the ball came to me, he seemed to be a yard in front of it. Um, which which kind of made made no sense. So quite what was going on, I'm I'm not entirely sure. But th- it was those little moments that made you feel that they they weren't going to get a win out of that game. And I guess having not got a win out of it, and and given how tight the table is and how slowly the table's creeping forward, the point was certainly better than nothing. Michael, you said you didn't think it was a valid excuse when we spoke. 
after the match on our podcast. Do you stand by that? As Phil says, they've been there for an awfully long time with those floodlights, and I can't remember anyone ever flagging them as an issue before. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the new pylons, they are due to be higher, aren't they? So I guess yes. it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be shining in your face quite as much. But we're not talking about, like, I remember a Scotland away game once where they were complaining because the floodlights were basically on the side of the pitch, shining directly at the players. But the, I mean, the, the top of the West End is still very high. And it hasn't been an issue for the past twenty odd years, so I just don't see it as as a valid excuse. The, 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 what they're planning to fit um, are pylons, which will be planted in the the West Stand car park, one at each end, one at the the South Stand end, and, and one at the Cop end. So um, towering over the West Stand, as opposed to the lights at the moment, which obviously run run across the the top of it. It never looks like a good excuse, and it never it never washes really. Um, and, and as I say, without actually seeing through the players' eyes, it's it's very difficult. To know, but they they still go down as as extremely good chances, and I think I think again it's it's unfortunate for Bamford because it, there are issues with his finishing anyway, and it's such a it's such a constant topic of conversation, and you, you kind of see that happening, and you think it it just had to be him, didn't it? What the Luton game has done is manifested the fear again, and I use that with capital letters: the fear, the Leeds United fear has reared its ugly head again. Are we okay? That's what I want to know. And Phil, you're you're in a position to make kind of an objective call on this because as soon as Leeds start misfiring like this and don't get results out of games like the Luton game that we should do, it just makes everybody terrified and unsettled. Do we have cause to be concerned? No more than than is usual um, with this football club or, or football clubs generally. I think what has happened is that we had the projections before the restart began of how fit leads were going to be, how sharp they were going to be. You sensed an attitude coming out of the club which said, we're going to finish this off ASAP. Be no messing about. We'll, we'll get the results. We'll get it done. And ideally, long before you're, you're straying into the, the last nine games of the season. Um, instead, it's been four points from three so far. They could do without Hernandez being below 100%. They could do without Liam Cooper having to go off on Tuesday night. And I, th- I think he will play at Blackburn. That was certainly the indication Bielsa gave after the game, although Bielsa hasn't done a, a pre-match press conference this week. So we haven't had any further update on that. But he did seem to think that Cooper would be would be fine. But clearly you have a, a slight concern there. They could certainly do without Stuart Dallas pulling a hamstring or, or whatever it is that he damaged, you know, the t- top of his top of his leg the bottom of his of his bottom uh, for want of a better phrase he's, he's evidently pulled something there and, and I don't think he will play at Blackburn certainly Bielsen was, was doubt, very doubtful about that so there are just little issues there that are not making it easy there are little issues there that are disrupting the flow there have obviously been slight issues with the performances and they, they haven't put together a full 90 minutes yet they, they haven't played in a way that's been really really convincing but then I always try to say to myself were they ever likely to after such a long layoff and, and coming back like this? I mean, having watched a lot of championship football, Brentford looked to me like the only team who've really, really clicked. I mean, Cardiff looked strong. Derby from a long way back a little while ago are suddenly getting into the mix for the playoffs. And actually, I think might might be thanking the lucky stars for that deal for, for Wayne Rooney. But they just seem to be they seem to be fresh and they seem to have a lot of zip in their football. I don't think Leeds are lacking freshness particularly. And I don't think there's a a complete lack of spark but I, I just feel that what we were kind of anticipating and almost what we were promised you know because of the way they looked after themselves in lockdown and because of the, the confidence there was about the restart it, it hasn't really materialised so if I look at the table and I, I see that there's six points clear of Brentford it's a decent gap it's not an overwhelming gap but it is still a gap which is requiring Brentford to turn on some very very impressive form to get past leads in the running but to look at the way they're playing at the moment, you have to be honest and say it could be done. Before we move on from the Luton game, can I ask you about corners? Yes. Because I I understand that the way we play isn't really, we're not a set-piece team and that maybe it we're more about trying to get the game going again and playing in a normal way rather than putting it in the box. But surely putting it back to your own goalkeeper isn't part of a plan, of anyone's plan. I'm honestly not sure what the plan is with corners other than to trust in Calvin Phillips to produce a very clean strike of the ball and for something to come off in, in the six-yard box or thereabout. The, the problem is that Phillips, despite his range of passing in, in open play and despite his, his many qualities, which are you know kind, kind of endless or, or have been endless at that championship level anyway, he's not a great striker of the ball um, in dead ball situations. His corners are not brilliant. He fails to clear the near post or the first man on a lot of occasions. And I think... What was obvious on Tuesday was that they were 
trying in little periods to mix it up with uh, by playing the ball short or by trying to almost trying to set up that Paul Scholes at Bradford volley, you know, the, the ball to the edge of the box where someone is to, to hit it. But it didn't feel as if it had been practiced, practiced to the nth degree. It seemed as if it was all a bit disjointed and this, as if the communication wasn't there. And, and you're right. I mean, there, were, there was one in particular that was almost running back to the halfway line by the time anybody picked it up. We have spoken to Bielsa about this before and he never, he never really gives an awful lot away about how he thinks about corners, what, what he reckons. And I know that they do practice set pieces, but my assumption with him would be that the vast percentage of the time they spend out on the training pitch is, is to do with open play, it's to do with transition, it's to do with the patterns of passing that take them through the opposition and, and don't rely just on one killer ball into the, the six-yard box, which I mean, is the total antithesis of Bielsa's tactics and, and of his play generally. But without having dug the stats up recently, I know when Leeds were at, at home to Derby, I think it was, they'd scored one in a hundred corners um, at that point. And I mean they must have had they must have had endless not amount of them this season because of the amount of attacking they do, because of how, how often they go out wide. And it just is not a, a productive source for them in any way. I mean we all know how high the rate of conversion is for set pieces. It you know it creates what I don't know, is it a quarter, a third of all goals? But I never watch Leeds and think, oh, we could score from this. We get a corner and I think, oh, well, never mind. That's not right, is it? Well, something that always comes to mind with me is is a comment Thomas Christensen made when he first came in. And he said he'd been uh, coaching with um, Apoel in Cyprus, but his playing career had been spent in Germany and other European countries, um, never over in England. And he was kind of baffled by corners, the concept of them, uh, because... To his mind, corners abroad were, were basically a case of play the ball. You know, it, it was never a big excitement. It was never something that the crowd got into. And then he came to England and he found that any time a team won a corner, there was this big surge of noise, there was this big surge of expectation that something was coming from it. When in actual fact, statistically, you, you don't score that many from corners. I mean, Leeds are not good at them, that, that's fact. But I think generally across the game, they don't tend, you know, if defences are organised and, and if you've got the, the right sort of, sort of discipline then you don't tend to you don't tend to gain too much from them so he never really understood that he couldn't understand why it was over here that everybody everybody kind of reacted to them on a slightly lesser level than you would if um, if you were awarded a penalty but again it's, it's a little bit like the XG factor it just feels like that is going to be a kind of constant thing while Bielsa is head coach they, they probably aren't ever going to be a team who are particularly proficient or skillful when it comes to corners. But deep down, I always ask myself, does does he even care? I mean, does he, is he bothered about that? There's so much good about his football and so much else to it that maybe it's just a, a kind of peripheral issue. Well, I guess we could spend hours going round and round on this and, and the shortcomings uh, that we see in the side. But to the matter at hand, and that is Blackburn away this weekend, and it goes without saying, it's another must win. What can we expect from this game? Difficult game. Very difficult game. I mean, they are still to a point in the mix, Blackburn, and they're going to have to get it together very quickly now if, if they're going to get involved in the playoffs. And it does feel, because of you know, the, the points that Forrest and Fulham have already got and Brentford, that it's a bundle of teams now going for one playoff position, which is sixth and Cardiff are there at the moment. But you know, Blackburn, five points back, they can't afford to get two or three more games down the line and be five points back. They're just not going to make it if they do. So we'll kind of get into going for broke stage now I think um, where you've got to be ambitious and, and you've you've got to be you've got to be open and it probably helps Leeds that they don't need to make any consideration about that the, the position they're in you could still say well look if Brentford drop points over the weekend and, and Fulham and Forest and others then a draw wouldn't be a bad result at Ewood Park but Bielsa won't play for that he, he never ever plays for that and they're going to they're gonna have to be careful they're going to have to look out for Blackburn um, at set pieces they're going to have to look out for your, your Bradley Dax your skillful players who, who can, can do damage but I think it's a game they've got to take something from they, they have to they, they cannot risk Leeds getting into a situation where they've got Brentford West Brom ahead of them Brentford three points back and suddenly everything feels like it's on the line because that is exactly where the tension will rise I've got a sneaky feeling that we do okay out of this game I, I can feel if the right Leeds United turns up and we set about them with purpose and I guess that's always the question isn't it but we're perfectly capable of winning this game because we forget that on our day we are the best side in this division and often it's from these little setbacks like we've had against the likes of, of Luton that Leeds bounce back and 
I don't know. I just fancy us to, to nick something out of this. Mind you, I said we'd beat Luton, but there you go. Just to say, actually, I was I was nattering on about Bradley Dyer, but he's injured and and won't won't be involved. But they they still still are fairly strong. And actually, when I've watched them, I've been quite impressed by Blackburn. They they don't look like an out and out playoff team, but they do look like like one that that has an outside chance of of sneaking in, and and that's still the case. I mean, I you talk there about if the right Leeds United turn up, I, I kind of feel that if Leeds turn up. In, in virtually any game they're, they're liable to win it um, that's been the, the story under Bielsa is that when they when they play and they play well they're, they're almost too hot to handle it is very very difficult to contain them and I mean we've you know we're obviously planning pieces on Bielsa for, for as and when Leeds go up and it's interesting from speaking to other people the other opposition players and, and managers who, who come up against him and the, the, what they see is the, the biggest difficulties of, of trying to face down his Leeds team it's the movement and it's the, the relentlessness and, and when they're really on it it's so hard to deal with and it's so overwhelming that you do make mistakes and you can't avoid losing players and you can't avoid leaving gaps that, that let somebody creep in to, to score. So, yeah, you, you're right. It, it's 100% a, a winnable game. It's just a case of, uh, do you get leads um, in the, the first sort of half, first hour against Luton, or do you get leads um, from the second half against Fulham, um, which, again, was it was just a, a system and a, and a pattern of play that Fulham couldn't live with. And if it is the second, if it is the Fulham game repeated, then, yeah, they, they should come away with a win from this. Well, a player who arrived with plenty of fanfare but has left with something of a whimper, John Kevin Augustan. We now know that the loan isn't being extended for the remainder of this extended season. Where does that leave things now then, Phil? It's become a bit of a strange subplot, this. At a period of the season where I think it was quite apparent to everybody that that he wasn't going to play or wasn't going to be heavily involved, I I think it, it was fairly obvious from the first point where the News about the, the niggles with his hamstring and the, and the fresh struggles with his fitness started to break and, and emerge that it was highly unlikely he was going to get back to being fit enough to play towards the end of the season and, and in any of the nine games that were left. And certainly we've we've had no expectation of that. But his loan was officially up after the uh, the Luton game on Tuesday, uh, June the 30th. The, the club actually had until the 3rd of July to extend it if they wanted to. The EFL had given clubs in the championship a, a little bit of extra time to handle the the loan deals but it, it was never expected and it was never anticipated that they would extend it there was no real chance of him playing again this season given that the, the regular season and that the regular league games will be up in in little over 20 20 games time 20 days time sorry the, and the bigger question around this and the bigger issue is what is going to happen now with the obligation to sign him it is a firm obligation and, and it was a firm obligation when the deal with Leipzig was agreed back in January, um, as we've touched on before. It was the nature, really, of all the deals that Leeds were looking at in terms of the strikers they were after. Pretty much everybody that they spoke about, every club that they approached and, and every target that they looked at was going to involve a loan fee followed by an obligation to sign if, if they were promoted. That would have been the case with Shea Adams. It would have been the case with Jared Bowen had, had Leeds gone gone down that route with Hull City. And naturally, it was the it was the way that Leipzig wanted the deal to be structured. And the, the rationale from Leipzig's point of view is that Augustine, despite them not wanting him and despite the fact that it hasn't really worked from there and, and clearly it hasn't worked from well in England so far either. He is still worth money uh, and he is still a, an asset in that sense and there was no value to them in loaning him out for a small fee um, if at the end of it they couldn't guarantee themselves some cash. So in Leipzig, they're certainly expecting um, this to be a permanent deal. They're expecting Leeds to, to take it up when the season ends and to pay somewhere in the region of 18 to 20 million for him to make that deal happen. At Leeds, I, I can't help but feel that there is going to be some very, very serious thought given to this now. And I think they'll have a, a good hard look at the contract to see whether in fact they are obliged to do this, whether it is watertight and, and whether they are fully committed in the way that, that they are, for example, with, with Helder Costa from Wolves. I, I think that the thing that's most concerning about it if we're talking about the possibility of a future permanent deal, is Bielsa's reticence when it comes to talking about Augustine. We we asked him after the game against Luton what the situation was, whether he thought the, the loan would be extended, whether there was any chance of playing. And, and Bielsa doesn't often do that, this, but he, he effectively gave us a no comment and said, I don't want to speak about this and I don't want to I don't want to discuss the possibility of him staying for longer until we get further down the line. And even today, you know, there has been a statement from the club confirming that his loan won't be extended and that he is effectively finished in in that sense here. But there was no tweet about it. There was the, it was not given any prominence. It is on the website, but you would almost miss it unless you you really went looking for it. And it's it's one of those big stories that is 
lacking a lot of substance at the moment. It's lacking detail. It's, it's lacking the clarity of what Bielsa really thinks and, and how Leeds intend to go forward with this. But suffice to say, for the time being, we won't be seeing any more of him in a Leeds shirt. Well, lots to pick apart in that. Let's go back to the start then and the financials on this. We're potentially in for 18 million quid or thereabouts to sign him. And, and a sizable wage thought to be in the region of about £90,000 a week. Is it correct that we've been paying all his wages during this spell? I couldn't give you an exact figure, but they've certainly been paying a, a large sum for him. And in many ways, I mean, the, the, the wage on its own looks astronomical. And my understanding is that he's on pretty close to €93,000 a week at Leipzig. It is a, it is a very, very sizable salary. And it's a it's a Champions League salary, really. It's, it's top-end wage um, for a player who had a lot of potential when, when Leipzig paid £30 million and um, taken from PSG. The only issue with that, or the only kind of saving grace with that, is that when you total it up over the course of 20 weeks, 16 weeks, 20 weeks, um, to, the, to the end of his contract, it amounts to a, you know, a large-ish but not insurmountable loan fee. Um, so from Lee's point of view, it, it was affordable and it was doable in the short term. And clearly they know that if they go up, they suddenly have Premier League income, they have more money to work with with the wage bill. The wage bill will have to naturally expand. But by a mile on that sort of money, £90,000 a week, he would become the club's top earner at a stroke, way above Casilla, way above Costa, way above Patrick Bamford. You know, it, it is moving on to a completely different level. And that wouldn't be an issue had he come in and settled and, and scored goals and looked good and, and been up to speed with what Bielsa was asking of him. But because his body hasn't coped and because he's barely played, I mean, we're, we're talking literally 48 minutes to date with Leeds, it becomes a very sizable risk and it becomes a, a big, big financial risk. It's it's potentially £90,000 a week for a player that Bielsa isn't necessarily sold on. It's not far off a record transfer fee or potentially a record transfer fee again for a player who at this stage Bielsa doesn't feel he can use because his you know his fitness isn't right his fitness levels his weight everything else just aren't hitting the um, hitting the targets and your gut feeling is that this might well be a deal that Leeds have to try and find a way out of because the bottom line with Bielsa and you know I think we we all assume that if Leeds go up Bielsa will be here next season it doesn't seem an, an awful lot of doubt about that. And the bottom line with him is that if if you aren't right and if you if you aren't conforming and hitting the levels that he's asking you to hit, you won't play. And and there doesn't seem to be any compromise with that. There doesn't seem to be any exceptions. I think the the only player who is handled slightly differently, and even this is on a very rare basis, is Pablo Hernandez because of his age and you know to sustain his body at a stage of his career where where you know he is creeping towards the the final years as as a player. But with Augustine, the last thing they want on the books is an alleged twenty million pound asset on a wage of of ninety thousand pounds a week or or thereabout or even anywhere close that Bielsa ultimately isn't going to use and and doesn't want. How do you expect the club to deal with this? Are they? I mean, obviously the first step is presumably to go back to Leipzig and say, can we just call the whole thing off? But are we potentially looking at a situation where we're almost like David Livermore years ago, we've, we've got someone in who we then realise pretty much instantly we don't want and we're going to have to buy him and try and move him on instantly. The first port of call with this will be Bielsa and I assume the club must have spoken to him um, in, in some detail about this, although at these periods of the season and, and when the football's in full flow, that Bielsa doesn't tend to want to be distracted by by things like this. It was the same with size when that was dealt with very quickly. Once it, once he was told, look, size wants to go, it was a case of, well, if size wants to go, then he needs to go and he needs to go very, very quickly, i.e. overnight and, and basically tomorrow. If Bielsa was to say to them, I think I could get Augustine fit in pre-season, I think he could actually get to, to my um, my sort of level. I think he could still be a big player for us because Bielsa does really rate him as a footballer and, and it, he was somebody that he specifically wanted and, and identified in January. If he thinks that Augustine can get to the right physical specifications, then it may well be that he says, look, I think we can do something with this. And if Bielsa wants him, then then he will stay. But it's very hard to say that we're getting that vibe from Bielsa at the moment. And I think if if there was some confidence in him about what Augustine could do further down the lane, I think he'd be saying so at this stage. I, I, I get the sense from him that his, his kind of reticence and his reluctance to speak about it is born out of frustration about the fact that it hasn't worked, about the fact that as he said himself, you know, a, a fit and firing Augustine is probably worth 30, 40 million pounds at his best. They've got that in the in the squad at Leeds, but they, they cannot get a tune out of him and, and they cannot get him to the point where Bielsa even feels happy to have him on a bench, 
you know, that, that allows for, for nine substitutes under the, the new EFL rules. So that's port of call one. Beyond that, if, if they are strictly legally tied to this, and that will depend on, on the terms of the contract, there may well be loopholes in there in, in terms of dates or, or other clauses. But if they are tied to it, then they essentially have two options. They, they either do the deal and they, they sign him. And then if, if he doesn't fit, they, they try to move him on. But that makes very little sense. And it's an extremely convoluted way to, to deal with something like this. The other option is to go back to Leipzig and say, look, this doesn't work for us. And, and potentially it might be the case that in Augustine's head, he doesn't think it works for him either. And that everybody agrees that another way has to be found. But of course, that would depend entirely on other clubs being interested on, other clubs being able to hit the same kind of financials that Leeds were talking about when they first did the deal back in January. So this one is the potential to get very complicated. And I think the reason there's so much confusion about it at the moment is that nobody is 100% clear where Bielsa stands. Nobody's 100% clear where Augustine stands because he hasn't said anything about this situation since it, it first started brewing after his return to training. And I think until you figure out clearly where they are in regards to thinking about this. It's hard to predict how it will go. Are the shades of sort of Izzy Brown in this one in that it's a player who's clearly just not making the cut, whether it's physically or by whatever metric it is that Bielsa judges them, you know, outputting murder ball or whatever, but he's minded not to criticise players because it's not kind of in his DNA. He doesn't do that. He will just generally sort of bat it away or no comment it or give, you know, non-answers to questions like that. Do you think maybe that's part of it? Very much so. Very much so. I think that's absolutely right. Izzy Brown is a, a good comparison in in the sense that Brown is a talented player. You know, he is a good player. He'd, he'd won promotion at Huddersfield. He, he seemed like a player who, who occupied the sort of area where Leeds were, were lacking after Sayers leaving. And with Brown, it, it did just come down to physicality. He obviously had his injury, had the, the knee ligament injury that took a long time to heal. And, and when he came in, Leeds were... were were obviously aware of, of what was going on with it. They knew that he was going to have to go through the back end of his rehabilitation before he was fit to play. But he was fit and he was available for the last two or three months of the season. And and for Bielsa, it did come down to training. It did come down to ball, And it did come down to those sessions where your running's measured, your intensity's measured, your sprints are measured and, and everything has to be on point. And it never really was with Brown, which is why he got so few chances. And, and likewise with Augustine. I mean, I've said before that I, I've spoken to people on both sides who are adamant that, that this hamstring is a, still a problem for him and, and it is still niggling. But I'm not so sure that Bielsa is convinced that it's a it's a huge issue. I, I think he's, he's disappointed by the fact that Augustine hasn't been able to get get himself in line and, and to put himself in the frame to to even be on the bench. And that's the, the long and short of it. And as I say, you, you know, if, if you pick back through Bielsa's entire time here, he, he is consistent and he doesn't make exceptions for people. And, and it is one rule for, for everybody. That, to an extent, is why Janssen was gone. It's why others couldn't get in the team. It's why Sai is left. It's, it's why Izzy Brown didn't get much of a game, even at a stage of the season where it felt as if somebody with Brown, like Brown might be able to serve up a little bit of, of magic. And I mean, we've we've all seen seen enough football, followed enough football, followed enough transfers and, and managers to know that it would be a big, big surprise now if Leeds and Bielsa actually wanted to do this one permanently. I mean, the season's not over yet. We should stress that very much. So we don't know how this one plays out. We don't know exactly at what cost it will have come in terms of how thin the squad is. And, you know, we've got our misgivings about Patrick Bamford and his his inconsistency in front of goal. All that in mind, do we now have to look at Victor Orta and see and say he's perhaps a little bit culpable in this and the club's approach towards recruitment? Because the broader question here is about the whole season, isn't it? And yeah, we saw Niketia come in and not be properly used and go back. How does that all fit together then? And what's Orta's role in this? I think the one area where... Or the- the one issue, the one thing where I would question the club over would be the the handling of Kamar Roof's contract last season. It certainly fair to say that by the summer and by the point where Anderlecht were coming in for Roof, there was no chance of Leeds matching the contract that they were offering. It was way above sort of standard Championship wage. It was a very very good offer that Roof was minded to to take, and it's been a, a good move for for him to Belgium. But if you go back a little earlier in the timeline with Roof, th- there were definite opportunities to extend his contract, and and there were definite points I think to make that happen. And Roof quite understandably wanted some form of parity with Patrick Bamford, which I think was 
was fair to ask for given the the way it had gone for both of them in the first half of the uh, in the first season under Bielsa. It was never dealt with him, and because of that, he was gone by the the start of the season and um, but started Bielsa's second season. And, and essentially, Bielsa lost there a player who was extremely well tuned into his methods and and his ways and. For most of the year that he played under Bielsa, had fitted in perfectly. You know, I, I think it improved very noticeably as a, a centre forward in his all round play, but but also his finishing, and and I think had the potential, despite his his injury issues, to to get better again this season. Where I think that the criticism of Otter is unfair is that Niketia, to my mind, was a very good signing. He is a very good striker, and and he what. He, proved himself to be a very good finisher. And whether or not he, he truly fitted Bielsa's system, and I think we we all kind of doubt that he did perfectly, it seemed to me that there was scope to use him more. It seemed to me that there was there were ways of involving him more and, and, and I guess treating him in a way which would have made him feel in January like he might have wanted to stay the back end of the season that he wouldn't have been in favour of a recall and neither would Arsenal. And because he because he was involved so little and and you know, I, I go back to the stat that shows that, that Forshaw has played more than Nicketi this season, despite Forshaw being injured from the end of, of September onwards. Because he wasn't involved, he, he was minded to leave. And essentially, it left Leeds in a position in January where they were scrambling to find a good striker within a, a certain budget. Now, Bielsa's defence there is is that obviously the results were good, very good. And, and Leeds were in a great position in the league. And, and it is hard in those circumstances to justify tweaking the team. But I guess when you have a, a loanee with the kind of calibre of Niketia and the reputa- reputation that Niketia has, if to some extent you don't manage that or massage that and, and nurture it, the chances are you, you're going to lose them. And the, the plan in January was to bring in Shea Adams. And I know that, that Leeds were, were under the impression that as of late December, the board at Southampton were going to let Adams come here again. It would have been a similar deal to Augustine. It would have been a loan with a fee, it would have been a, an obligation at the end of it to buy um, had Leeds been promoted and, and you would have been talking, in, again, sort of 15 to £18 million pound bracket. And ultimately that one fell through halfway through the month. And, and you know, from what I've been told, the striker that appealed to Bielsa on the list that was given to him was Augustine. You know, he liked Augustine. He, he thought he saw a lot in him that would suit the, the way that, that Leeds play. And he wanted that deal to be done. I just wonder, and I've said before, whether it is really feasible for somebody to come in midway through the season in January, minus the, the sort of conditioning and, and the fitness that every other player has got under Bielsa and make a particularly impressive impact. I think as an outfield footballer, it's it's extremely difficult. And I don't know, I mean, you, you two might contradict me here, but I don't think Otter has, has gone far wrong with Nketi and, and Augustine. I know Augustine hasn't worked and I know the... I know there are, are clearly fitness issues there, but he is painly to look at his past performances at the, the points at which he was best at, at Leipzig. He is painly a very, very good striker and somebody who you did think Bielsa would be able to make some pretty good use of, much as Bamford was always going to be first choice. I think where I'd question Alter maybe is the structure of the deals, which I don't know if that is necessarily Alter or Kinnear or someone in the club, but it was it was frustrating that we were powerless to keep Nketiah because of the terms of his deal. And then we're now locked in the other way on Augustine in that we seem powerless to not buy the man, even though we evidently don't seem to want to use him. So I guess there's that. I mean, going back to the start of the season when we we got rid of Roof and we got Nketiah in, I know we were praising him on our podcast saying how off the bench he did seem to offer something different to Roof. He obviously clearly was a good finisher. He seemed to have quite a lot of natural instinct about him and he seemed like the sort of person who would be able to grab you you know, even coming off the bench might be able to get you 10 or 15 goals in a season. So the early impressions were that, you know, maybe we'd done good business on that. Being unable to keep him, however, and having not get the loan fee back as well, I think does make you maybe question the structure of this. The problem with loan deals these days is that the the power and the the control of them is entirely in the hands of of parent clubs. Um, if, If you go back sort of 10 years, you had a lot of Premier League academies that were quite happy to send players out to the lower leagues and, and would do do deals which in, in many ways made it easier for, for lower league clubs to, to take them than than it is now. You'll, you'll remember the story of the, the pitch that Orton and Leeds had to give to Arsenal to convince him to convince them back in August to send Niketi to Leeds rather than to Bristol City um, or Fortuna Dusseldorf. And it was done entirely on their terms. And and likewise with, with Leipzig, and the same applied with, with Shea Adams down at Southampton. He was their player and, and he was, in theory, worth a, a lot of money. And because of that, Leipzig were only going to release him if, if they were covered financially. So obviously they, 
they wanted to deal, you know, recovery of, of wage in the period where he was on loan. But because they knew they wanted him wanted him gone this summer and, and he wasn't going to feature, they also wanted Leeds to commit to that deal. And, and Leeds found themselves in, in that corner where it ultimately they either agreed to take on an, an obligation like that or, or they kind of finished the, the month empty-handed unless they were forced into going for somebody who, quite frankly, Bielsa probably wouldn't have, have wanted anyway. And I think when, when I look back to Bielsa's frustration in January about Nketiah and the amount he spoke about about him and, and the the extent to which he, he seemed aggrieved at the narrative that was following him, you know, he hadn't played Nketiah enough, he didn't look after him, he didn't hold up his end of the bargain with Arsenal. I think there was frustration about the, the coverage and I think there was frustration about the, the kind of little attacks on his character. But I think as well, there would have been an annoyance in the background that he was even having to go through the process of finding another striker because in his head, Nketiah was there for the season and, and he didn't see any reason for Nketiah to be leaving at that point. I do tend to agree with you that on paper, these are good signings. And, you know, when you look at the reception that both of them got coming in, fans very welcome welcoming to both and, and open to the idea that they'd really contribute something. I do wonder if maybe we're looking at this in slightly the wrong way. Is it is it a case that we should be looking at Orta's lack of understanding of how Bielsa works when it comes to recruiting targets? Because he's shot pretty high with the targets in terms of Nketiah as a Premier League player on Premier League wages, uh, and he's now playing and scoring in the Premier League. You've got uh, Jean-Kevin Augustin, who's on a, a massive wage, and as we're saying, it's a Champions League wage, you know, proper top-end cost involved in that. And yet we're asking them to come in and, and be second fiddle to Patrick Bamford in the championship, essentially, when they come in and get up to speed with all these really exacting physical standards. So has Orta, whilst he's, he's aimed high and you can't fault him for aiming high, do you wonder if maybe those players don't mesh in so well with how Bielsa actually works in real world terms? Well, yeah, I think that's probably true, but you you tend to learn on, on the job with these things. I mean, put it this way, if... If Leeds go up and Bielsa is here next season, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if they do absolutely nothing in the January transfer window um, that comes round. Now, obviously, this season coming up is going to be a bit a bit truncated. It's going to be a bit skewed because of the the COVID shutdown. So, quite how the windows and everything else are going to work is is not entirely sure, uh, entirely clear. But if this was a regular season coming up, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Leeds were to say, "Look, at the end of the summer transfer window, at the end of the the initial splurge of recruitment." to set us up for the season. The squad is the squad. Because it seems apparent to me that unless you get somebody, you're able to get somebody who is in form, in shape and ready to go, then it's going to be very difficult to make any impact and, and to reach a point where Bielsa feels like he can rely on you heavily. I mean, you've almost seen it a similar way with Paveda. Paveda's back in the picture again because Paveda's had a very good period of training um, since the COVID shutdown. But he was a long way out of it beforehand because, again, it, it just wasn't quite happening and, and what Bielsa see, was seeing from him wasn't exactly what he wanted. And it's been a case for Paveda of just getting in and tuning in touch with what he's been asked to do and, and with getting the, the same understanding or the same levels of understanding understanding that the players who've been there for two years already have. And and it does seem as if the, the I mean, Alter doesn't like the, the January window either. Leeds don't particularly because of the fact that it tends to be expensive and your, your options are generally limited at, at that stage. But it does just feel that it it's not an optimum market for Bielsa either. It's a point in the season where most of the players who move, unless you've got very, very big amounts of cash to spend. Most of the players who are available and, and who are, are there to be moved around tend to be surplus. And, and in the case of Augustine in January, hadn't played a lot of football at Monaco, um, hadn't trained anywhere near as much on a weekly basis as he has to with Leeds at, at Thorpe Arch. So really, it was not set up perfectly to come in and, and thrive. But at the same time, I think everybody, and, and Bielsa included, thought that it, it would go better than it has. I mean, again, easy to say with hindsight, but... Surely that goes back to the point I made before about going into the season with only one striker and one loanee at a time. If Orta doesn't like having these problems in January, why have we gone in with one striker and a loanee who you always run the risk of losing at some point if his parent club decides to recall him? The thing with a lot of loan deals, as with Ben White's from Brighton, is that they, they tend to include clauses which mean that if a player plays enough for the club they're on loan at, the parent club have no right of recall in January. And, and that was the that was ultimately where they fell down with Niketia was that he hadn't hit his required number of minutes. So because Arsenal were tempted to take him back and because Niketia 
deep down wanted to go back. There was no way of obstructing that. I mean, we, we kind of go around the houses with this regularly in, in as much as I, you know, I always feel that an additional centre-back or another midfielder and certainly another striker would be advantageous. But Bielsa just doesn't see it like that. And, and he was certainly happy to go into the season with Nketi and Bamford. It was a, in his head, it was a, a decent front two. And, and I know that the club have spoken to him before and have said, you know, what, what would be a contingency if, if there were injuries? And, and he says, you know, if, if Bamford is injured, I'll play Tyler Roberts up front. Okay, but what about if Tyler Roberts is injured? Well, if Tyler Roberts is injured, I'll play Jack Harrison at number nine. And it is it is adapting. It's it's kind of being flexible in a way that most managers wouldn't be. Most managers would say, "Well, if I have those injuries, then I've got a big problem, and you know we we need more cover." But cover just isn't what Bielsa deals in. It, it's not it's not what he wants. And and I'm still inclined to feel that going into the season with Bamford and, and Inketia was a good mix up front for a coach who who only really wants two out and out strikers in his squad. But but you're right. I mean, you, you, you're not wrong about Nketiah. The fact that he was a loanee, the fact that he was somebody else's player meant that you were always vulnerable in that sense. But there is a contrast to be drawn with Ben White, who has obviously been excellent in the main right the way through the season. And because of the way he's been used and because of the amount he's played, he was always going to be here for the, the full 12 months. I'm aware this is going to have very little relevance at the end of this season by the looks of it. But what, what of Ryan Edmondson now? Because he's... Well, now we're allowed nine on the bench and we don't have any strikers. It seems like his chance has probably gone at the club. But, and I'm wondering as well why he's not being moved on alone, given we clearly not I don't have any plans to use him. It was funny with Edmondson because it was apparent for a, a long time that he wasn't ticking the right boxes for Bielsa. You saw a lot of 23s who were involved and, and a lot of 23s who were making the match day squads and he was never one of them, regardless of how short leads were up front. And, and Bielsa does use him a lot in training because he's big and he's strong. He's very good for, for mixing it with the centre-backs and, and for um, for for setting up these kind of 11-on-11 living, living games that, that Bielsa likes to do. But he had an operation just before the, the COVID shutdown um, on his ankle, I think, and Bielsa was specifically asked about him and he said he said actually his training has just started to to come to the level that I want it to be at and and it's it's hit that point right at the stage where it turns out that he needs an operation and given that he's had surgery and and given that he'll have been recovering from that we come back to the same issue with Augustine which is that Edmondson can't possibly be match fit at the moment in Bielsa's eyes and there are no under 23 fixtures to to use him in uh, th- there's no way of really you know, in, enhancing his recovery and, and his fitness at a rate that would, would make him available, unless Bielsa completely blindsides us with this one, in a way that makes him available for the, the games that are left. And I'm still not at all convinced that in the grand scheme, Bielsa sees him as a player who's, who's good enough for him. Time for you to level up then as we emerge from lockdown. And the Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and Harry sponsors it. Harry's founded by Jeff and Andy, two fellas who didn't want to pay too much for quality razor blades. Because we know that as the number of blades has gone up, the price has gone up to match it and it, they cost a small fortune these days. But the good news is Harry's Blades, now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. You can grab yourself a Harry's trial set for three ninety-five to get everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. You get a weighted ergonomic handle. In there, a precision-engineered five-blade cartridge. There's beautiful, rich, lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover for you to take on the move as well. Still looking good with your, uh, with your Harry's, Phil? Not bad, not bad. Yeah, the, the return of football has forced me to, to get a grip. So yeah, quite nice and smooth today. Get that trial set, the handle, the cartridge, shave gel and travel blade cover at harrys.com forward slash philhay right now. That's harrys.com forward slash philhay. Well, if the Jean-Kevin Augustin transfer deal didn't cover Victor Otter in glory, far better results, I would say, from Matthias Click. He is the winner of the part three poll that we open up to you so you can vote on it. It's on Phil's Twitter account every week. Three choices this week were uh, Clicky, who won it with over half of the vote, GFH, WTF, what the flipping heck, uh, with about a third of the vote, and Milanic bringing up the rear with about 11% of the votes. So this week we talk Clicky. 88 league starts straight on the bounce. One hell of a record. So... Matthias Click, a player who puts a smile on our faces. He does, yeah. And and it is funny that this goes down as a win for Otter because for a, a sizable chunk of his first season here, Click, it looked like this was gonna go down as a 
is a pretty abject failure. Not a hugely expensive one because he was um, he was about one and a half million pounds when he came in from um, from FC Twenty. So you know, one and a half million pounds that you'd, you'd rather not waste, but still, even for a Championship club, not the not a huge part of of their budget. Um, but yeah, eighty eight league starts on the the bounce is phenomenal. And and if he you know if he sees it through to the end of the season, and and if he is still part of the plans next season, which I assume on the BLC he absolutely would be, then um, he. he got a very good chance of, of hitting 100 uh, in the first month of um, of next term. And it's amazing to think that because I people have been pointing me to a, a sort of jinxy tweet that I put out when Matthias Cleek left for, for Utrecht when Christensen released him on loan. And I said, you know, it's, it's unlikely that we'll, we'll see him back here. You know, he has still got a contract for another couple of years, but realistically, this is probably... Him done, and I don't think anybody at the club would have disagreed with that. And and actually, even when Bielsa started to look over the squad and start to analyse the players and decide who was in and and who was out, he, he was very much in two minds about Click. He he wasn't totally convinced. Um, when he started to divvy up his squad, he had what they called the bomb squad, which was your players who were definitely going. They had the the A team, who were the players that he was completely sold on and, and were going to be involved right from the start. And, and then he had this middle group in which. Cleek featured, um, to a large extent, initially, it, it seemed that the, the middle group were there to kind of provide the padding for the friendlies in which Bielsa didn't particularly want to use too many of his of his first teamers or, or too many um, of the under-23s who were training with him. So there wasn't even really much expectation at that point that Cleek was going to do anything other than play in a couple of games and then potentially be offered out on loan again and, and realistically float in the background while other players got, got ahead of him. But... The two really crucial things for him that summer were, were firstly managing to catch Bielsa's eye in training and, and in the friendlies, even though Bielsa was wavering about him. And the second, and, and this, you know, it was like a sliding doors moment really, was Forshaw breaking his foot in pre-season and Forshaw going from the point where he was Bielsa's top dog and, and the player who, you know, bar none was impressing him most in the pre-season games and, and in the early training sessions to being on the sidelines and, and being unavailable. And, and because of that, there was a gap in midfield. Because of that, Cleek got a, a run in, in the last friendly um, before the start of the season at Stoke. Cleek played well enough. He got his start against Stoke and he has never, ever looked back from that point. I quite like his redemption story, to be honest, the fact that he was bombed out. Because he was bombed out as well without ever looking terrible. We've certainly, we just never saw him, did we? He made the one mistake and was out, whereas we've seen in, in other eras, midfielders play for seasons on end while being terrible. So the fact that he'd been he'd been kicked out so soon did seem a little bit harsh. But and I think when he came back, he was he was almost like a completely new player because he was part of that Bielsa team and obviously scored in Bielsa's first game. And I think since then he's I don't know he's quite he's very easy to love his click not not just for his stuff that he does on the pitch but his general air of mischief that he brings to the place, uh, like the pouring the water down uh, down the back and then. The, obviously scoring the goal against Aston Villa. I just thought, and he seems to always get on board with the chance and things. I don't know, he's, he's a very easy man to love. I think he's, he's quite unconventional. That's why I like him. He's just kind of, he's a bloke you'd want to have a beer with. I think uh, he's kind of, he's your weird mate that you want to hang around with. Cause he like, he's into the graffiti and the Polish rap and stuff like that. And there's just little things that he seems to really get leads as a club. And I mean, an example is like the, um, the Leeds Street Fighter mugs that we've got on sale with the square ball and that we did one batch of them. And he messaged us on Twitter and said, could you send me one with me on, please? So we did a second batch because he kind of, he wants to see himself done up like a, a Street Fighter uh, character. So we've done them and we've sent him one and God love him. I hope he's drinking um, his fizzy pop from it. He's, he's very happy in his own skin. I mean, you mentioned the graffiti there and there was a, a great interview with him and um, with a, a Polish journalist a, a few months back where they got on to talking about graffiti and, and he was he was going on about how he'd, he'd, like, he'd, he'd done some kind of legitimate graffiti with a, with a street artist in Leeds, but he was talking about how he would like to, and he wasn't genuinely meaning this before the police raid his house, but um, how he'd like to do some proper illegal graffiti in, in the middle of the night. He was talking about how he likes to watch the videos on YouTube where the you know the, the guys in New York basically bomb the metro trains there, the underground trains, you know, cover them in, in no time at all. And he was talking about the risks of it, you know, the fact that some of them some of them end up dying on the tracks from being electrocuted or or whatever else. And it was just like you sort of looked at it and thought, this is a like a, a traditional English head of communications nightmare. A player speaking like this, you know, players are supposed to talk conventionally, they're supposed to give kind of stock answers that they're not supposed to be that interesting. But he's just he just seems 
happy with his lot. He seems very content. And I think he he does very much tap into the Leeds ethos with the, the shithousing that, that goes on. I mean when I went to see his mum and dad in Poland in February for the, the piece I did, they were they were all they were aware of that. You know, they were able to sort of reenact the stuff that he, he does, which was really, really funny. But he he was just unlucky to begin with. He in his first summer, the first time I I saw anything of him was on pre-season in Austria when Christiansen was out there with his squad and Klee had suffered I think a, a thigh strain. Um so at the point where all the players were training fully and preparing for the friendlies that had been arranged out there, he was doing running sessions and trying to get himself fit. And at no point under Christensen did he ever really get a proper look in. At no point I, did I think we got to see Cleek as he likes to play and, and certainly not as Bielsa has, has had him play. And I, I remember him at Cardiff, the game where he slipped and conceded the first goal. And, and in his head, the, the game where Christensen gave up on him, Cleek always said he wore the wrong boots and... I think blades rather than studs on a, on a wet night, and and he felt like he he took the blame for that. But the style was sort of making him look like a, a fairly defensive and bland and uninspired midfielder. But when in fact he is great at covering the pitch, he's kind of all action and and very very energetic footballer. And you know we we got to a stage where I think before the the game away at Barnsley, Leeds won 2-0. They, they were short of players. Um, Christensen was down on numbers because of injuries and suspensions. So the, the question was asked, is Cleek going to feature? To which Christensen basically said, no, I don't think he will. I don't think he'll be involved. And Cleek decided that he was going to tweet a sort of mocking post, really saying, I can't believe this, you know, what is going on? And, and you got, you know, you, you start to realise straight away that the relationship had broken down there and, and it just felt like it was it was going nowhere good and, and that for Cleek this was all going to end pretty quickly. But he did say when he went from Ellen Road and he went over to Utrecht, he did say to Victor Arthur before he went, I'll definitely be back. He said, I'll be back next summer. And I don't think I'm finished here. And and I don't know whether Arthur really believed him and I don't know whether the club genuinely thought that there were any legs left in, in that transfer. But as it turns out, he has been the mainstay, the mainstay on the Bielsa, with no exceptions. Um, and, and somebody was saying to me that, that when Bielsa did his analysis of last season, he said that you know there was scope for a little fraction, a tiny fraction more from everybody in the squad, with the exception of Cleek, who he just didn't feel, on the basis of how he played last season, he didn't feel he could possibly ask any more of. What does he bring to Leeds as a footballer, do you think? Well, there were goals last season, weren't there? There were goals, there were assists. He looked like that sort of player who would, would chip in regularly. That's been less apparent this season. He has got some of both. his four goals, four assists. But what you find with Cleek, it's the it's the interplay with him. It's the key passes and it's the chances that he creates. And, and I often find that some of it goes a little bit under the radar. You can find yourself, if you don't, if you don't watch him closely, you can find yourself not noticing what Cleek's doing and, and what he's all about and, and how he's running a game. But somebody tweeted a, a while back saying, if if you watch Cleek, you see the whole game. If you watch the game, sometimes you don't see Cleek. And, and I think I think that's very true. I mean, in the squad at Leeds, you've only got Jack Harrison, um, who's created more chances um, than him. And well, in terms of, of big chances, and you've you, below him, you've got like Hernandez, you've got Stuart Dallas, and others, but he is right in the thick of it. You know, when leads are creating, when leads are cutting teams open, he tends to be there, he tends to be in the mix, um, he tends to be looking to get on the ball. And I do feel, if you know, I'm being honest, that he's been a little bit on the flat side since Leeds have come back um, from the restart. I don't think he's been at his fluent best. I don't think he's been at his energetic best. I thought there was a huge difference between him in the first and second halves against Fulham. But I don't doubt either that that was helped by suddenly having Hernandez alongside him in midfield, as opposed to Roberts, who is closer to a striker than he is to a midfielder and probably doesn't provide the sort of 8-8 eight and eight combination that you would have with Cleek and Forshaw and, and a little bit more so with Hernandez. But I think, you know, if, if you're looking around the team on Tuesday night or at the weekend or at Cardiff for, for people who, who could possibly just pick it up and, and help to push them over the line, he, he is definitely one. He strikes me as a man who's not, well, he obviously is a very good footballer, isn't actually that into football from his off the field stuff. What sort of impression do you get from that? Do you, is he is he a student of the game on the slide, or is he just uh, one of these who kind of turns up and does his job? He's got other interests. He definitely has. I mean, he he he's big into his video games, which is not um, unusual for a footballer. But as I say, I, I get the impression that away from the game, he, he enjoys things like graffiti, street art, as much as he does 
watching other football games. I don't know to what extent his, his interest um, stretches, but I would suspect that there are probably other players in the game who, who are more obsessionable, uh, are more obsessed or, or obsessional about the, the fine details of it. But to be honest, I, I sometimes think that must be quite healthy. I do think as a footballer, especially these days, you can get so wrapped up in your own regimented existence and the, the industry as a whole um, that it's difficult to switch off. And, and I guess sometimes probably difficult to find the release. And, he never seems to me the, the periods where he'll, he'll look a bit tired physically, maybe a, a little bit fatigued. But he never seems to me like somebody who who struggles to enjoy the game. He doesn't strike me as somebody who lets the game weigh on his shoulders. And I think that's probably why he and and certain others have been able to be so good under Bielsa because actually it's been hard and it's been exacting and at times it's been exhausting. But it's been enjoyable and it's what they do. And you know, I I always get the impression with him that mentally he's, he's very much got the balance right. In answer to that question that you posed there, Michael, I think there was something quite indicative in that interview that he did in that Polish magazine that you mentioned a minute ago, Phil. And that was, he, he seems quite anti-football almost, like he doesn't like the trappings of football, like he's not a bling merchant, you don't imagine him to have a particularly fancy car, because there was that tale in that interview of the uh, one of the under-23s at Leeds, didn't say who, but one of the under-23s, was it? they turned up in sort of Gucci trainers or something like that to do a treadmill session and they got the senior pro so I've had a word and said, look, that's not what we do here. Yeah, I think it was um, Louis Vuitton, although I'm no no expert on these things. And yeah, that was exactly the tone of, of the answer he gave was um, because the, the interview, it strayed into graffiti and, and other things, but it started with a discussion about the, the trappings of, of the sport and, and of the profession. Um, so the cars and the houses and, and the clothes and, and everything else. And Cleek did say, I'm never too into that, really. Um, I, I think there was a time when he was um, first turning professional when he was in Poland. But then when he moved to, to Germany and, and to Holland and had a bit more money where the bugs started to get him slightly. But it, I think it's it's gone. And, and again, he's he's older than a lot of the players who'll be milling about at Leeds, um, certainly the, the kids in, in the academy. And I did think that was quite telling. You know, the fact that somebody had come in with these trainers thinking it was a, it was a good look and, and had been collared by the senior pros and, and basically told that, that he was well above his station and, and needed to, to get his priorities right. And I think, I hate going down the, the cliched route of a good dressing room or a, a tight dressing room, but there just seem to be so few bad apples in this one. And, and I think it helps that you've got somebody like Bielsa cracking the whip. It's it's tough to be a bad apple and to survive for any length of time under him. I think very quickly it's a case of the coach or it's the player. And when you're paying that amount of money for Bielsa, when Bielsa is successful and is you know, as engaging as he is, he's always going to win out in, in that scenario. But it just feels like they are on a, a level that's relatively close to, to normal people. Um, and I think I think at Leeds you do need that. I'd hate the idea that, that when Leeds got promoted, and it, it will happen to a degree because the, the type of players they bring in will change the level of finance that they work at and the transfer market will change and the, the scale of egos will change. But I always think for there to be any connection, bet- proper connection between the players and the supporters, they've got to be able to understand each other. And for, you know, for all the, the criticism of individuals like Bamford and others in the team who, who get it from time to time, I don't think there's ever a feeling that these players aren't pulling a leg or, or that they that they don't want it. I, I do think that the general levels of appreciation are there. You mentioned before about us not quite seeing the best of him since uh, lockdown finished and they've got back at the game. What do we put that down to? Maybe just a certain degree of fatigue or the, the squad being too thin? Because you, you do suspect maybe he's missed that player next to him, don't you? I think so. And, you know, it has to be said that if you went back through the games um, last season and this season, that there has been a fair stretch where he hasn't had that player next to him. I think somebody to, to share the load. So for Forshaw to take some of the responsibility for what Cleek's having to do. I, th- there are occasions where it feels a little to me like Cleek is having to play for two in the middle. And I thought against Fulham, it was obvious that they were, they were kind of lacking a, another body in the middle. It was one of the reasons why Fulham were getting so much possession and one of the reasons why they were they were able to come on to Leeds. And, and again, against Luton on, on Tuesday night, the, there were periods in the first hour or so where... Leeds were, Luton were, were kind of attracting Leeds down either flank as Leeds like to play and Leeds were obviously willing to go that way and, and you would look in the middle of the field and there were acres of space with nobody in it because there wasn't, you know, with, with Roberts playing with a bit more of an attacking mind and, and a little bit further forward, there was nobody with the, the thought process or the, the kind of style to drop into that 
that zone and to think, well, there's a lot of space here that, that I could exploit. And you do constantly wonder when it is that um, Cleek's body is going to give up on him. I mean, to, to go 88 league games without an injury that stops you playing, particularly under Bielsa, is phenomenal, really. And, you know, I always go back to that slogan he's got in his gym in, um, near Krakow in, in Poland. People come in and say, where are the machines? And, and I tell them, we are the machines. And I mean, he's just, he's like a robot. He just keeps going, just keeps going. Joints need oiled from time to time, but but no more than that. And as I say, the rate he's going, he's, he's got a very good chance of making it 100 games in a row. Next week's Phil Hayes show might be moved around a little bit because we've got the daft five o'clock kickoff on the Thursday afternoon. So it may well land a little bit earlier in the week. We'll keep you posted with that one. Before we head off, let's pick a one to watch for this Blackburn game at the weekend, Phil. What are we going to keep our eye on? The person, the issue, the thing to draw our attention? After a conversation earlier, I'm going to go for corners. I'm going to see if um, if after what went on on Tuesday, they can they can break this again and if they can they can find a way to get it together. I've managed to get the numbers for this and, and to figure out how it, it really looks in, in black and white. I don't have the, the exact number of goals that have been scored from corners, but Leeds have scored eight times from set pieces. So if, if we assume that there are at least a, a handful in there from corners, and you remember Bamford scoring at Wigan and, and so on, it, it has happened. But in total this season, they've had 315, 315 corners over the course of 40 league games. And, and just to give that some context, that puts them top in the championship. There's nobody close to them. And second um, behind them are Brentford, who've had 254. So pretty much 60 less for Brentford and, and when you get down to the bottom of the list you've got Charlton who've had 170 so you know pretty much half the number Leeds have had and, and what stands out what, what really kind of strikes you is the fact that from 315 corners and, and you know you know as well as I do from watching them that most of those are, are struck into the box by Phillips or by somebody else only 77 have been successful in the sense that they've actually found a, a Leeds man in there and, and that's a, a percentage of think of about 25 it's very very low so I think we're going to get a goal from a corner this weekend. That's the one to watch. For Leeds or for Blackburn? Yeah, let's go for Leeds, just to keep <laughs> the punters happy. I've just done the division on that, and that's um, under eight corners, just under eight corners per game. Blooming neck, we need to improve on corners, don't we? Hopefully we'll start this weekend. Do you fancy that, Michael? Yes, let's, let's actually start finding someone that's not their player on the near post. Well, Michael always bets on things that aren't going to happen, so maybe this is the one. Unfortunately, they normally do happen. It's normally bad. <laughs> <laughs> Not this year, not this year. Right, we're uh, marching on towards the conclusion of this season and don't miss out on Phil's top draw coverage of Leeds United on The Athletic and everything else that's happening in the Premier League across the football world and sport across the globe. 40% off a subscription for a limited time under £3 a month. Head to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. We'll catch up with you next week. ta The Phil Hay Show.